Warning, the following podcast contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. The internet has become such an intrinsic part of our lives that it's often easy to forget that at one point in time, it was brand new. No one knew how to act online. There wasn't rules of decorum yet. No warnings of internet crimes and shady characters. It was a fairly innocent time. That was until 1994, when John Edward Robinson would become the Internet's first serial killer, a man who showed us all just why you should be careful when interacting with strangers online in chat rooms. You just never know who they may be deep down inside. Before I get this episode started, I just wanted to give my condolences to Jason Pickle, the host of the Cancer Dad podcast. His little son passed away from cancer. Neeland, rest in peace. Hello, and welcome to the jury room, where we dissect some of the most heinous, some of the most unthinkable, and some of the most monstrous crimes to ever scar the earth. From cannibalistic serial killers to decades-old unsolved mysteries, these stories are sinister enough to keep you up at night. John Edward Robinson was born on December 27, 1943, in Cicero, Illinois. He was the third child of five born to a very strict mother, Alberta, and an alcohol-addicted father, Henry. As a young boy in 1957, he was an Eagle Scout. John would even go to London as the only American ambassador to lead 120 Boy Scouts to perform for Queen Elizabeth II. While a young teen, John attended a private school called Quigley Preparatory Seminary in Chicago. This school was for boys who wanted to be priests. After one year, John quit going to school because he had problems when it came to authority and his behavior. John would also go on to drop out of the Morton Junior College in 1963 after studying to be a medical x-ray technician for two years. In 1964, John Edward Robinson married Nancy Jo Lynch after moving to Kansas City, Missouri. He and Nancy lived in a three-bedroom modular home in Olith inside Santa Barbara Estates, a large mobile home community. Nancy Jo and John had a baby boy in 1965 who they named John Jr. In 1967, they had a little girl, Kimberly. And in 1971, Nancy Jo gave birth to their twins, Christopher and Christine. John was working in Kansas City, Missouri, as an x-ray tech for Dr. Wallace Graham, a job he was not qualified for due to dropping out of college early. He had forged his credentials and pocketed $33,000 during his time there. In 1969, John was arrested and sentenced to three years of probation. 
John, without his probation officer's approval, moved to Chicago in 1971. He was employed at the R.B. Jones Company as an insurance salesman. That same year, he was again arrested for embezzlement. They ordered him to go back to Kansas City. The stunt could cause more probation time to be added to John's sentence. John was again charged in 1975 after creating a fake medical consulting company committing securities fraud, also known as stock fraud or investment fraud, as well as mail fraud, his probation would once more increase. Despite his criminal history, everyone perceived John as a great father and husband, a philanthropist, and an all-around good man who was all about bettering the community. He went on to become a scoutmaster, a baseball coach, and a Sunday school teacher. The change in his behavior was short-lived, however. In 1977, he was up to his old tricks once more. John Edward Robinson forged letters from a local charitable organization. John pretended to be their executive director and named himself as the organization's Man of the Year. He wrote letters to the mayor of Kansas City. John would also go on to pretend to be the mayor when he wrote other civic leaders. John was so convincing in his con that he actually hosted an awards ceremony luncheon in his own honor under the facade of being the executive director. In 1979, John was finally done with probation, but he couldn't keep himself out of trouble for long. By 1982, he was taken into custody to spend 60 days in jail for embezzlement and check forgery once more. When John got out of jail, he wasn't content to try and rebuild his life. Instead, John decided to just create another fake business, this one in hydroponics called Hydroglow Inc. Around that time, John had a friend whose wife was on her deathbed. John chose to steal $25,000 from the friend, telling the man that he would pay him back through a fast investment. John knew that if he didn't pay his friend back, his friend would not be able to pay for his dying wife's health care. It was at this point in John's life that it was alleged that John was asking his neighbor's wives for sexual favors. John Edward Robinson even went as far as to join the International Council of Masters, a private sadomasochism group, becoming their slave master. In the group, John led unsuspecting victims to their meetings to be raped and brutalized by the group members. As time went on, John's cons became more and more elaborate. He figured out that he could create shell companies. Shell companies only exist on paper and might have a bank account, hold funds, or it could be registered to the owner of certain assets. In 1984, John created two of these fake shell companies. He called the companies EquiPlus and EquiTwo to make the businesses look legitimate 
John decided to hire 19-year-old Paula Godfrey. Paula was given the position of sales representative for the Shell companies. John decided to meet Paula in person in order to train her. And so he went to her San Antonio, Texas home and picked her up. Paula told her family and friends that she was going off to train for her new job. She was never heard from again. Her father, Bill, after not hearing from her in four days, grew highly concerned. He flew to San Antonio and found the hotel she was supposed to be staying at. Never had Paula Godfrey checked in as a guest. Bill went and confronted John at work and told him he better hear from his daughter within three days. In the meantime, Paula's parents reported her missing. The police got in touch with John to question him about Paula's whereabouts. John told the investigators that he didn't know where Paula was at. A few days passed by, and Paula's parents received a letter. It was from Paula. The typed-out letter stated that she, Paula, was appreciative of all John had done for her. It also stated that she was okay, but that she did not want to talk to or see her family. At the bottom of the letter was their daughter's name. It was inked in Paula's handwriting. The investigators claimed there was no proof that anything harmful had been done to Paula, and that she was over 18, so there was nothing more they could do. Not a single sign of Paula Godfrey's existence has been found since. In 1985, John Edward Robinson decided to start going by the name of John Osborne. In Kansas City at a woman's shelter called Hope House, he met Lisa Stassi and her four-month-old baby, Tiffany. John Edward Robinson found his next big con. He decided to pose as someone from a charitable organization that helped unwed mothers. It was the perfect way to lure someone in, as they would be in a more desperate situation. John made big promises to Lisa. He promised her things such as a job in Chicago, her own apartment, and daycare for Tiffany. She would have all of these things as long as she did one thing. That one thing was to write her signature on blank sheets of typing paper. Not seeing the threat ahead of her, the young mother agreed. John would then pick Lisa and baby Tiffany up. They would end up staying at the Overland Park Roadway Inn. The Roadway Inn was where Lisa would last be seen alive. John's brother Don and sister-in-law Helen had tried multiple times to adopt a baby but were unsuccessful. Suddenly, John knew of a newborn whose mother had completed suicide and for 5,500 in so-called quote-unquote legal fees, Don and Helen were now parents to a four-month-old baby girl. They were even given adoption papers that looked valid with fraudulent signatures of two lawyers and a judge. On January 13th, social worker Kathy Stackpole got a typed letter from Lisa Stassi. Betty Stassi, Lisa's former mother-in-law, would also receive a typed letter. 
However, Betty knew something that John had not. She knew that Lisa could not actually type. John began calling around in hopes of deterring suspicion. He would ask people if they had seen or heard from Lisa because she and baby Tiffany were no longer at the inn with him. Around this time, John's probation officer was hearing rumors about John's fraudulent, illegal business deals. The probation officer would raise the alarm against John Edward Robinson once more as he ramped up an investigation into the claims of fraud. The FBI had also been keeping an eye on John's shady business deals around that time. The FBI decided to go into John's apartment in June of 1985 while he was away. They were shocked by what they found. In his apartment was a woman named Teresa Williams. She was so grateful that the FBI agents had found her in time and had saved her life. Teresa would tell the agents how she met John in April of 1985. After infiltrating Teresa's lives, John thrust her into a life of sex work. Teresa then agreed to let John be her pimp. He began to physically abuse her on a daily basis. John told Teresa to keep a diary and write down what he told her to. When John returned home from the Bahamas, at least that's where he told Teresa that he was going. He was furious about her being gone. He went as far as to hire a private investigator to try and find her. The PI found her in July. John instructed the PI to keep surveillance on the house to find out who she was staying with and why. This PI, Charles Lane, would be interviewed by the FBI. Realizing the threat against her, the FBI would place Teresa far away from John Robinson. In 1987, 27-year-old Catherine Campit moved to Kansas City, leaving her child with her parents in Wichita Falls, Texas. She was job hunting when she found the perfect job. Her new employer, John, told her she would be traveling abroad and that he would even buy her all new clothes. Her parents were very suspicious because this all sounded too good to be true. They warned their daughter to be careful. Catherine would go missing in June of 1987. She has not been heard from since then, but her missing persons case is still open to this day. From the years of 1987 to 1991, John would be charged and convicted with multiple frauds. John was locked away in the state of Kansas. From 1991 to 1993, John served time in Missouri for yet another fraud sentence and for once more violating his parole. He suffered a few strokes during these years, and the right side of his face would become partially paralyzed. The prison where John was sentenced had a prison employee by the name of Beverly Bonner. Beverly was a 49-year-old prison librarian. Beverly, it would turn out, had actually known John from 20 years back when they worked in Kansas City together. 
Now, John was serving the rest of his time at the Western Missouri Correctional Facility, where Beverly now worked. When John Edward Robinson finished serving his time there, Beverly Bonner decided she wanted to be with John, so she went to Kansas City with him. And now, for a quick break. Hello, this is Mama D, and I'm the host of Petals of Support. Petals of Support is a podcast that offers advice from a mom to anyone that needs a little extra love and support. This is not advice for moms, but advice from a mom. I've covered such topics as forgiveness, how to forgive, when to forgive, and when it's okay to not forgive, letting go, how to make good decisions, and how to handle stressful situations. I'm not a licensed anything. I'm just a mom that wants to provide to you the same advice that I give my kids, my friends, and my family. You can find me on any podcast platform. You can also find me at Twitter, at Petals of Support. Please go listen, find the episodes that apply to you, and maybe the ones that don't. You can file that information away for later. If you like what you hear, please subscribe. Thank you. Now, back to the show. Beverly left her prison doctor husband for John. Strangely, however, all of the alimony checks for Beverly from her now ex-husband had been arranged to go to a post office in Kansas. Beverly Bonner was another woman who seemingly disappeared while in John Edward Robinson's company. Years after Beverly went missing, her alimony checks were still coming to the post office. It would turn out that John Edward Robinson was steadily cashing those checks. Beverly's ex-husband received type letters from Beverly, informing him of what she was up to. Like the other victims, her signature was scrawled on the bottom of each letter. Her ex-husband never thought anything weird of the situation. That was until Beverly didn't attend their oldest son's funeral in December of 1995. Even at that time, he thought that maybe she was on a very important business trip. By the mid-1990s, John discovered the World Wide Web under the username Slave Master. He crept around various websites hunting for submissive women in the BDSM scene. John used computers and email extensively and also utilized a cell phone and pager. John's wife, Nancy, began working as the on-site manager at Santa Barbara Estates in 1997. In the mid-1990s, John acquired roughly 17 acres of property at a secluded Lynn County location. He moved a trailer on to the property in July 1998 and installed two phone lines, one for his landline and one for his computer. Sheila Faith was a 45-year-old single mother who lived in Fullerton, California, taking care of her 15-year-old daughter, Debbie. Debbie was wheelchair-bound, suffering with spina bifida. Sheila met John online when he told her he was a rich businessman and humanitarian. 
Sheila had emotionally been in a bad place since her husband, also named John, had passed away in 1991. Sheila had just received the best news from John Robinson. John Robinson was going to hire her to work for him, and he would even pay for Debbie's medical bills. Sheila couldn't believe their good fortune. She and Debbie packed their things and hastily moved to Kansas, even though her friends told her they didn't have a good feeling about the move. The mother and daughter would then disappear without a trace. For the next seven years, John Edward Robinson would pocket the money from Sheila's pension checks. Sheila's brother, William, began receiving letters from his sister. She went on and on about the great time she was having in her letters, but William wasn't buying it. He asked Social Security to find out where Sheila and his niece Debbie were. The administrator wouldn't tell him anything, though, because that information is considered private. It seemed like once more John would slither away into the night. John would go on to spend years in the BDSM online chat rooms and was known by many in the community. John had found the perfect place to lure unsuspecting victims to him. Isabella Lewicka was born in Poland on April 11, 1978. She moved to West Lafayette, Indiana with her family at the age of 11. Isabella began studies at Purdue University in the fall of 1996. She was interested in the arts and was an avid sketch artist and painter. According to friends, Isabella also had a strong interest in several alternative lifestyles, including paganism, goth culture, and BDSM which stands for bondage, discipline, dominance, submission, and sadism. In the spring of 1997, Isabella told her friend Jennifer Hayes that an international book agent in Kansas City had offered her a job doing secretarial work and commissioned her to illustrate BDSM manuscripts. Isabella said she planned to move to the Kansas City area to be with this older married man who had also agreed to train her to become a dominant in BDSM relationships. Lewicka told Jennifer that the man wanted her to call him master and to maintain strict confidentiality. Isabella seemed concerned when she inadvertently told Jennifer her master was named John. While attending Purdue, Isabella became friends with Don Carter and often used her computer to get online. She told Don she had a job opportunity in Kansas City illustrating and editing books. Isabella said that a man named John, whom she had met online, had a job and apartment for her and that they had plans to travel. Isabella told her parents that she had a summer internship with a publishing company in Kansas City, and if it led to a job, she might stay longer. But she did not rule out the possibility of returning to Purdue for the fall 1997 semester. She said she would be living at 928 
Metcalf in Overland Park and could be reached by email. On June 8, 1997, Lewicka left for Kansas in her car filled with belongings. Her friends believed she moved to Kansas City both for BDSM training and for her new work. Once in Kansas, John helped Isabella establish herself. They leased a private mailbox located at 9280 Metacalf in Overland Park, the same address Isabella had given her parents. In October of 1997, John had his insurance agent write a two-year auto policy on Isabella's vehicle, explaining she was an employee. While John and Nancy were still married, that didn't deter John from asking Isabella to marry him. She said yes, and the two went to the county clerk at the courthouse and paid for a marriage license. However, that license would never be picked up by anyone. Isabella told her parents that she and John were married, but never told them what her husband's full name was. John, on the other hand, told people that Isabella was his cousin. In the BDSM community, there are many roles such as dominant, submissive, slave, slave master, daddy dominance, brats, among many others. John's preferred role was a slave master, and Isabella had signed a contract to be his slave. She gave him full control over her body, her life, even her bank account. In the summer of 1999, John informed a web designer he had hired that Isabella was caught smoking pot and left the country. Her parents would begin receiving typed letters signed by their daughter, detailing her worldly adventures. Once more, a woman would disappear in the presence of John Edward Robinson. Suzette Marie Troughton was the youngest of Carolyn and Harry Troughton's five children. She lived near her mother in the Monroe, Michigan area. The two were extremely close and talked daily, even when Suzette was away. Unbeknownst to her mother, Troughton was active in the BDSM community. She frequented BDSM websites and chat rooms, created her own BDSM webpage, and traveled out of the state for BDSM rendezvous. In the mid-1990s, Suzette met Lore Remington online. Lore, a Canadian woman who shared Suzette's interest in BDSM role-playing games, trained Suzette as a slave. A submissive sexual partner who may even take on this role as a part of their full-time lifestyle because they gain pleasure from it. The two became close friends. Lore introduced Suzette to her friend, Tammy Taylor, who also lived in Canada and shared an interest in BDSM, and Tammy would become another friend to Suzette. Suzette placed personal ads on BDSM websites seeking a position as a slave. At that point, 
Suzette and John Robinson began communicating by email. In the summer of 1999, Suzette told her mother that John had offered her a job caring for his elderly father, Papa John. She said John and his father were selling off several companies and Papa John needed nursing care as they traveled to various locations to close the deals. She said the job would pay 60000 annually and required extensive travel to places such as Switzerland and Belgium. When she and John finally met, he talked some of his friends into posing as his family members to trick Suzette. After five days of visiting with John, he moved to an apartment in Kansas on Valentine's Day of 2000. John paid for her to stay there for the next two weeks. She was happily John's submissive slave and had a lot of experience being a slave for other slave masters in the BDSM scene. Suzette and John would often take pictures of their encounters and Suzette would email them to her friend, Crystal Ferguson. Suzette maintained an online presence after moving. Suzette's mother began getting typed letters in the mail with her daughter's signature on the bottom of the page. She and John were supposedly abroad, enjoying their travels. Her mother said the letters were not like Suzette's. There were no mistakes in spelling, and it all seemed a little too perfect to be written by her daughter. Suzanne began signing her emails to her friend Crystal as Suze and the conversation shifted from current life happenings and past relationships to how great her new master was and how he treated her so well and how she wanted Crystal to experience this happiness. Crystal wasn't fooled, however. She began seeing all the red flags within the emails and wanting to find her friend, she began to play along trying to see if she could figure out just who was really sending the emails. Crystal knew this mystery writer was not Suzette. A man by the name JT eventually got in touch with Crystal. The two began to communicate. It was immediately noticeable that the writing style of the emails from JT were just like Suzette's new style of writing. Crystal knew that the writer posing as Suzette and this man by the name of JT had to be the same person. Crystal played along with JT for several weeks, going so far as to even talk on the phone with him. During the events with JT, another man, Tom, began emailing Crystal, wanting to be her master. Tom even gave Crystal a few phone numbers to reach him at. Crystal took the numbers and handed them over to a friend who happened to be a police officer. All the numbers were traced back to belong to John Edward Robinson. Suzette's mother began to worry after not hearing from her daughter in a long time. John called Suzette's family, saying she had stolen a lot of money from him and ran off with a male friend. John rambled and complained about how Suzette let him down when Suzette's sister Dawn talked to the police about this story, she found out that John Edward Robinson was already under investigation. 
John began getting a little sloppy, a little too cocky. In 1999, the law enforcement in Kansas City and Missouri began to connect the dots as John's name was coming up in various missing person investigations. During the search for Suzette, authorities found a hotel that the two stayed together back in February. There was even bloodstains in the room they had rented, but the testing didn't determine the source. And now, for a quick break. Hello, my name is Chris, and the fine people at the jury room have allowed me a couple seconds here just to introduce my podcast, which is called the Cult Film Companion Podcast. We are home of the movies that are off, under, and ahead of the cinematic radar. We are currently available on ACAST. We have a Facebook group, Twitter, at Cult Film Comp, C-U-L-T-F-I-L-M-C-O-M-P. And that's the best way to interact with us. Our show is all about giving some underrated movies another look at and trying to introduce some of these movies to people that might not have seen them. Some of the movies that we've covered so far on the show include Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, Bad Lieutenant, The Howling, Bad Santa, Showgirls, Repo Man, Female Trouble, The Underneath, Brazil, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, Let's Scare Jessica to Death, Blowout, David Lynch's Dune, Baba Hotep, and some of the movies that we have coming up are Steven Spielberg's debut film Duel, David Cronenberg's classic Videodrome, Highway to Hell, Blind Fury, Empire Records, True Romance, and so many more. If you want to get kind of a crash course, film school-esque, listen on some some cult favorites, then this is the show for you. We invite you to join our community, to join us at the Cult Film Companion. Pop it into your Google machine. We will be the first thing that comes up, and that'll give you all the info, where to hear the show, where to join us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and all that good stuff. Thank you so much for taking some time to listen to me and thank you so much to the Jury Room Podcast for allowing me this time. Now, back to the show. In March, John stayed at the Extended Stay America Hotel in Kansas with an unknown woman. The clerk was in shock when the woman came to print copies out of a document she had. It was a master and slave contract. The clerk notified the police and said the document had the name John Robinson on it. The police stocked out the hotel and compiled evidence against John. Another five days passed. John told the woman to go to Dallas and then he would help move her to Kansas. She didn't hear from him after a while. So she tried calling, but he never answered. Finally, she called the police because she was worried about her master's whereabouts, and she wanted the many bondage photos he had of her. The police got in touch with the FBI, who had been making a file on John, which included suspicions of pimping out sex workers and sex trafficking. In June of 2000, A woman went to the police to file a sexual battery complaint against John. She said that he kept overstepping her boundaries when she used her safe word. Vicki Neufeld lived in Texas. She lost her job as a geriatric therapist in March of 2000, and her financial situation was dire. Vicki placed personal ads on BDSM websites and began emailing John. She and John discussed a potential BDSM relationship, 
and he sent her a slave contract to review. On April 23, 2000, John asked Vicky to visit him in Kansas. John told her he was a wealthy businessman and had a history of helping other professional women get established in the area. He promised to support her and said they possibly could pursue a relationship. John arranged for Vicky to stay at the Extended Stay America in Overland Park. She arrived on April 23, 2000. As John has requested, she brought her own sex toys along for the trip. The two engaged in sexual activity at various times during her stay. On the morning of April 26th, John told her he was leaving for a business trip in Israel and wanted to discuss a plan for her to move to Kansas. He told her that his business would pay movers to bring her belongings to Kansas that weekend. He asked Vicky to leave her sex toys with him, explaining it would give her extra incentive to return. She left behind her rattan-type canes and a mesh bag full of sex toys, which she valued at $700. She returned to Texas, but the movers never showed up. On May 22, 2000, she asked John to at least send her sex toys to her, but he did not comply. Vicky filed a police report. The robbery charge specifically gave investigators the opportunity to acquire a search warrant due to probable cause. The police went to 36 Monterey Lane in Santa Barbara Estates on a Friday morning and knocked on John's door. He was arrested and his wife Nancy was taken in for questioning. It was apparent early on that Nancy was in the dark about what was happening with her husband. She wasn't able to provide the investigators with much information. Investigators flocked to John's property. On his farm, Forensic investigators made a grisly discovery the next day. Cadaver dogs discovered five metal drums. Inside one of the 85-pound chemical drums was a nude, blindfolded, decomposing body lying in the fetal position, face down. Another body was found in a second drum. These were the corpse of Isabella Lewicka and Suzette Troughton. Over that weekend, search warrants were approved for two storage lockers John had while in Missouri. That Monday, the task force found three chemical drums labeled as rendered pork fat. When Kevin Winner of Kansas City, Missouri PD Crime Lab opened the first drum, he bent over to pick up what he thought was only a shoe. He began to lift it, realizing there was a leg attached. The dead bodies that were discovered inside of these drums were later identified as Beverly Bonner, Sheila Faith, and Debbie Faith. All five women had been murdered by blunt force trauma to the head. That afternoon, 56-year-old John Robinson appeared at the courthouse, where he was made aware that his bond was now being raised to $5 million. The trial began in 2002 for John Edward Robinson, who was charged with the murders of Suzette Troughton, 
Lisa Stasi, and Isabella Lewicka in Kansas, there were also additional charges that were tacked on. The trial of John Edward Robinson was the longest criminal trial Kansas ever had. It would lead to John Edward Robinson being convicted on all counts. His wife Nancy even took the stand to testify that she was aware that he used the alias JT, James Turner. She testified that she knew John was having multiple affairs and that he enjoyed BDSM. The jurors watched in shock as a home video of John and Suzette was shown to them. Suzette sat on the side of the bed, looking at the camera. John was behind the lens as she told him, I'm your slave, everything is yours. He responded, The most important thing in life that you are is my slave. The jurors collectively covered their eyes, mouths gaping open, not believing that such a type of relationship was more normal than they may realize. To them, this behavior seemed to be appalling and deviant. However, these words and feelings are very commonly expressed in BDSM relationships. The only thing abnormal about this situation was that a woman trusted this man as someone to keep her safe, to protect her and her well-being, but he ended up killing her instead. John was sentenced to death for Suzette and Isabella's murders, but only sentenced to life in prison for Lisa's death since at the time of her murder, Kansas had not reinstated the death penalty. John was given five to 20 years in prison for interfering with the parental custody of baby Tiffany, giving her over to his brother and sister-in-law under the guise of a real adoption. John was sentenced to 20 and a half years for the kidnapping of Suzette and seven months for the theft. When the trial and sentencing was done in Kansas, authorities in Missouri had enough evidence to charge him with the murders of Paula Godfrey, Catherine Clampett, and Beverly Bonner, as well as Sheila and Debbie Faith. John's lawyers wanted John to avoid a trial in Missouri at all costs because Missouri is very successful when it comes to getting capital punishment convictions. The prosecutor, Chris Coster, offered up a plea bargain. However, the sole condition of any plea bargain would be for John to take authorities to the bodies of Lisa Stassi, Paula Godfrey, and Catherine Clampett. John, to this day, has never cooperated with investigators refusing to tell them where the bodies of these women are. Chris Coster was determined to make a deal with John because the state didn't have a convincing and compelling case against him, with no indisputable proof that the murders happened within his jurisdiction. At the same time, John was facing death in Missouri, which he was being pushed to avoid at all costs. In the midst of the trial, there were emails with false information being sent far and wide. Senders were warned to not communicate with the following usernames. Slave Master, Sweet Cali Guy Forever, I'm a Hustler Baby, Monkey Man 935, Rock Hard Abs, and most recently, Dreamweaver Gray. The email would look like this. 
subject from the state police, not a joke. Please read this. State police warning for online. Warning from the state police, USA, not a joke. State police warning for online. Please read this very carefully. Then send it out to all people online that you know. Something like this is nothing to be taken casually. This is something you do want to pay attention to. Think of it as a bit of advice too. If a person with the screen name of monkeyman935 contacts you, do not reply. Do not talk to this person. Do not answer any of his or her instant messages or email. Whoever this person may be, he or she is a suspect for murder in the death of 56 women so far, contacted through the internet. Please send this to all women on your buddy list and ask them to pass this on as well. This screen name was seen on Yahoo AOL, AOL Instant Messenger and Excite so far. This is not a joke. Please send this to men too, just in case. Send this to everyone you know. Ladies, this is serious. John made it crystal clear that he was never going to tell anyone where the corpse were, and finally, an agreement was reached. John took a plea deal in October of 2003, which said he recognized that Chris Coster had enough evidence to convict him of capital murder for the deaths of Paula Godfrey, Catherine Clampett, Beverly Bonner, Sheila, and Debbie Faith. This was essentially a guilty plea accepted by the Missouri court. John's statement was said to have no acknowledgement of any responsibility for these killings. Instead of death, he was given five life sentences in prison without the possibility of parole. Nancy Joe had been married to John for 41 years in 2005 when she filed for divorce, where incompatibility and irreconcilable differences. Lisa Stassi's daughter, Tiffany, known since her fraudulent adoption as Heather, filed a civil suit against Truman Medical Center in Kansas City in 2006. She also filed a civil suit against Karen Goddess, a social worker. Karen was blamed for putting John in touch with her mother, Lisa, and herself in 1984. After John told Karen, he gave support and assistance through his charitable organization, to unwed mothers of white babies. The next year, Heather settled with the hospital for an unknown amount of money. She said she would split the money with her biological grandmother, Patricia Sylvester. Also in 2007, she won another lawsuit that would prohibit John from making any money from potential books he may write in hopes to sell plus any possible TV and movie deals. The Kansas Supreme Court relinquished Suzette Troughton and Lisa Stassi's convictions in November of 2015 on technicalities. Isabella Lewicka's death sentence and conviction was sustained. The return of capital punishment in Kansas happened in 1994, and John's death sentence is the only one in which Kansas High Court has upheld a death sentence. 
Kansas and Missouri authorities worry about times that are unaccounted for in John's past, knowing there's a possibility that there could be more victims they aren't aware of. The last bit of control the investigators say John has is what he knows, which he will never reveal to anyone. They feel there are other drums waiting to be opened and other bodies just waiting to be discovered. Thanks for listening, and remember, you never know what's lurking in the shadows, lingering around the corner, walking past your house at night. So watch out, stay safe, and keep listening. This has been The Jury Room.